This is the Darren Paltrowcast with Darren Paltrowitz. I've been interviewing musicians, comedians, and all sorts of entertainers for almost 20 years. Joan Rivers, Flavor Flav, Paris Hilton, members of Guns N' Roses and the Eagles, and countless others. This show is about artists and why they do what they do. For this edition of the Paltrowcast, I spoke with three acclaimed artists from very different walks of life. Longwave singer Steve Schiltz, Grammy-winning artist Fantastic Negrito, and Queensryche bassist Eddie Jackson. First up are highlights from my chat with Steve Schiltz, as taped in mid-January. Steve and his bandmates in Longwave are about to release their first new album in over a decade, while Steve himself has a few other albums ready for release, including one with the band Wa Together. My favorite part of the interview is Steve's response to my staple last words question, in which he actually references the response from another Steve featured on the Paltrowcast, Genesis guitarist Steve Hackett. You essentially transitioned from being, you know, guy moves to New York to person who has a major label deal to somebody who's transitioning going, what am I because this major label thing isn't happening anymore? Did it ever come close to getting a day job or do you view what you do in the studio as a day job. I'm curious about that. Uh, the only real proper day job I've ever had was when I first moved to New York. I had a temp job first, and then I got a, a proper job where I was on the payroll. But it was weekly. I, I'm sorry, it was like uh, hourly, sorry. So I never had a, a real like salary in my whole life. Um, but that job was on Wall Street. It, was just a, it sounds fancier than it was. I had it for about four years, and then Longwave got a, a record deal, and I was able to quit. But in between, like when Longwave kind of was, uh, after the second record we did two for RCA, um, we were out of money. I was out of money. And I, I started doing temp jobs. And man, I mean, there's no, uh, there's nothing like letting a fire under your ass to try to get your shit together than like you're the singer in a major label band, then you show up at a temp job interview and the the person that you don't respect is telling you that they can't get you a job because you can't type 200 words a minute or you don't know all the intricacies of, you know, the different formulas in Excel or something. And you're, like, looking at this person, like, I wouldn't hire you for my organization for my band, you know what I mean? So, like, around that time, uh, I started getting offers playing guitar for other people, so I would, I would take them just to be making a living. And then... Yeah, but I've never had to, somewhere around the Twilight thing again, was where, I, that was probably the lowest point. I think when the Twilight thing happened, like when I finally got a call saying it's actually happening, I had something like $40 in my bank account. And I was in debt, and they're like, yeah, right, so you're, you know, the publisher's going to, if you need some money to live on, they'll advance you 50 grand because you know, you'll make that money back for them. And I was like, Jesus Christ, <laughs> you know? So... You know that was the lowest point right right before that happened, and ever since then, uh, I you know I used that money, set up a little studio, and I've been able to make a living since then. But uh, yeah, I do view the TV commercials I do kind of as a day job, but it's not a bad job to have. I don't you know I like doing it. So it so, sounds like you learn the principle of reinvesting in yourself uh, at a good time. Yes, <laughs> it was also. You know, that Twilight thing happened. There was money coming to me. I could have put it into Longwave, but I just felt like Longwave at that moment in time was, was 
had had was needed to be put on ice, you know, have a break for a little bit there. So that would have been a bad use of the money. <laughs> so a good use of the money was to buy some studio gear, and I bought a couple of guitars, and then I think we did some touring for Hurricane Bells just to make it, you know, make a go of it, see if it was going to stick or, like, if it would find any success beyond the soundtrack movie thing. But it, it, it ended up not really having any more life beyond that, but we did get to do some cool shit. We went to India on tour. We went to Japan. We went, did a couple of tours around the U.S. So, I mean, it was, it was pretty amazing. It was really like I thought I was down and out, you know, it was over. And then all of a sudden it was like, you know, think again. <laughs> you you, you got you to gotta keep going. Well, now bringing things to, to present day, I believe you have three yeah. records in different states of completion right now. Is that true? Yeah, they're all completed, actually. Uh, the last one, we just mastered it yesterday. I have a hunch we might have to go back and, and do a little revision, but uh, it's, uh, you could say that one's pretty much done. So yeah, the three three new records right now. There's a long wave record, um, a, a, new, a new record, which is exciting. And then there's uh, a project called Cloudy Banks, which is uh, me and a, a friend of mine using only instruments uh, a friend of ours uh, has repaired or put together. Uh, I, that one's interesting because the guy himself doesn't know that we've done it, which is uh, we, you know, will be a surprise to him. And then uh, the other third record is by Wa Together, which is a band with me uh, playing guitar, not singing, uh, the drummer from The Rapture, Vito, and bass player from LCD Sound System, Phil, and then a, a girl named Jaiko Suzuki singing. And that one is great. That's began as a recording project, like, like a bunch of this stuff did. And it's really just uh, it's an excuse for me to not have quite as much responsibility musically on my shoulders. And I get to, you know, play guitar in a way that I think is cool. Well, if you okay. have all that going on and then writing that you do for TV commercials, do you write every day? Yeah, there are different kinds of writing, though, right? So, uh... I haven't written a proper song, I would say, with the words and everything in, in, in too long now. I, I need to get, back, get that back together again. The problem is now, because I have a studio, like when we do records, it, it's possible to make them, which is a beautiful thing, but it's also it also means that the jobs that used to be somebody else's jobs become my job too, you know, like, like the editing or whatever. So that takes time and it takes me away from writing, you know, what I would say are proper songs. But the TV stuff, that's much, much easier and, and uh, doesn't take as much effort or time to do it. You know, like some of the, the commercial stuff is like 30 seconds long. So you can really crank those out. <laughs> so, and, it, and it's also not as, uh, you know, it's not something I want to have you over and say, Darren, check out this, these five TV spots I try, you know, I was pitching for you know it's like no that's that's not as cool as like check out the new long wave record or something yeah it's just different just different have you found that a lot of your peers have also gotten into the composing game like you have yeah some of them a couple of years ago about six years ago maybe uh i you know when i say I do these tv commercial things i'm usually i'm freelance and i usually am pitching them like meaning i don't know that i'm going to win them when i'm trying i just do some music and send it and uh, you're competing against other people doing the same thing. So um, at one point I won this Verizon job, a commercial for Verizon, and I found out that a guy named Peter Gannon had picked 
what I had done. He didn't know it was me. But Peter used to be in the band Kala, and Kala was a great New York City band from you know Long Waves time to early 2000s. And we did some touring together, and they also toured with Interpol, and they were a great band, Kala. So I found out Peter had picked this thing, and so you think, wow, what, Peter is now doing this shit too, you know? So at some point I connected with Peter again, and now he hires me to do these jobs as well, you know? So yeah, like it's funny to find people who are just survivors and, you know, like me, I don't, I think Peter or other people that do this stuff at this point would say there's not much else they know how to do, you know, like I, I can't really, you know, uh, I'm not a carpenter, <laughs> I'm terrible with computers other than Pro Tools, uh, you know, I, I don't know what else I would do. I already told you I can't type 200 words a minute, so <laughs> sure. uh, this is what I do. So other people, uh, I think, are in the same boat, and it's cool to reconnect and, 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 and uh, you know, find, find them again. You say, wow, right, and then it's nice because then you can still work together on something. There's a, another company that a uh, guy used to work for Big Hassle a long time ago who did Long Waves Press, and now that's who I'm doing the job today for. He asked, you know, can you want to work on this? So, you know, it's cool we get to... And it's, it's great that way because they understand, too. The worst thing about doing the, the commercial stuff or the ad stuff is if it's strangers, which doesn't happen much for me, but there's not as much of a perspective on it, whereas with with some of the people that I've known for a long time, they say, right, well, this piece of music they want is probably a little dorky or it's, a, you know, nothing special or cool about it. Can you just do it? And I say, yeah, of course, you know. Like, everyone knows what we're doing here. We're just trying to, to win the job, and everyone makes their living. And it's not the same as, like, coming up with the guitar loops on the Long Wave song or something. It's just a different uh, reason to be in the studio. But it's all good, you know? So th- I hope that makes sense. That That's actually a really big part of doing the, the TV stuff, is the reason it's, it's palatable for me and I, I enjoy it is that most people I work with uh, or work for have a perspective like that. And we all say, right, we're just trying to win this thing. We're not making art. You know, this is going to be over by 5 o'clock today. <laughs> you know, it's easy. Another project of yours, Harvard of the South, is that still active? Oh, yeah. uh, I'd say it's on hold. For all, The only reason being that the other guys in that band are in the band Blue October, and Blue October is doing pretty well right now. So I think rather than confuse the situation for them, they're just trying to, you know, really double down on Blue October at the moment. So uh, I hope we get back to it soon. It's uh, it's fun. It's like dad fantasy camp for me. You know, it's a total release. And, you know, like I get to go out and, and do like, if we do a little opening thing for Blue October, I go out for two weeks and blast some guitar through two amps at once with that band, which is awesome, loud guitar. <laughs> and then I come home, you know, it's like the greatest thing ever. Like no, no responsibilities. Like it's, it's awesome. So ultimately, I'll ask the closer. Uh, any last words for the kids? Uh, what was it that you, the Steve Hackett guy? The Steve Hackett guy. Of course, I don't mean to say it like that. Steve Hackett from Genesis said, "You make your own last words." Right? I think that's, that's a good. It's a good quote. But yeah, it's. Uh, I think the idea is just to try and enjoy doing what what you're doing. You know, the music stuff. It's 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 rough, but at the same time. Uh, it's rougher to take shit from a boss you don't like, <laughs> you know. So you gotta you gotta figure out a way to you don't have to do that. 
So you just have to try really hard and, and, and enjoy it. Well, I'm impressed that you listened to the Steve Hackett episode all the way through. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> well, of course, he's an amazing, legendary guitar player. And he's where yeah. your guitar tone came from, of course, right? Later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, d- definitely that Mesa Boogie uh, flat radius fretboard shreddering guitar stuff. That's that's. Uh, I think he and I both owe a lot to that style. <laughs> Next up are highlights from my chat with Fantastic Negrito, who I spoke with at the Clearwater Sea Blues Festival in beautiful Clearwater, Florida, back in February. The Oakland native recently won his second Grammy for the album Please Don't Be Dead. His music is great, but his backstory is arguably even better than his very popular music. Thanks go out to Jason Bizell, who helped arrange the interview and also got a great question in towards the end of the interview. Does winning a Grammy, and this is your second one, does it change your life at all? It changes the way people perceive you. But my life remains, you know, I try to, I'm very grounded. I live on a farm, you know. I'm like, oh, nice. I got chickens, I clean chicken coops. When I flew back home from L.A., I washed dishes, you know. So I don't know, I, 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 I think the way that people perceive me changed, but I'm the same dude. I have the same friends I've had for 30 years. That's awesome. Yeah. I live in Oakland, I'm insane. Right, so you're at the center, or you have been at it for a while with, with Black Ball. That's still going, correct? Yeah, that's still going. It's like a collective Black Ball universe. It's Malcolm Spellman, myself, and a few other crazy people. Now, when you started, did you just have the name and that it evolved into being what it is in terms of being a real collective? Well, I think I had the um, idea from being on a major label, and I thought, and I was young, Black Ball, whatever, so... Uh, it just seemed kind of, you know, dark and kind of sacred and kind of a weird tribe. Sure. And uh, I, I like it. It's black ball humor. It's like, who would come up with that name? So that's what I like about it. I was always kind of an oddball growing up, and I just kind of learned to embrace it. So it's going well. The idea of it is what matters, is that artists can collectively you know, put their resources together to make things happen without, you know, big business stepping in and... Mm-hmm. You know, kind of, I hate to say ruining it. But I mean, I don't want to say, yeah, I mean, artists, you know, there's artists and then there's people that want to be famous. I think there's a big difference. Well, one of the things that I love about your overall path is that you found pretty much all your success doing everything your way. You taught yourself instruments, for example. What was your first instrument that you taught yourself? Piano. I used to sneak into the University of California, Berkeley. And um, I'd sit in the practice rooms and just like, listen to these students and they were playing scales. Of course, I didn't know what a scale was, but I just just listened to what they play and just copied it and I got pretty good at it. And do you always write on piano? No, not at all. I write on everything. Anything, brain, boxes, pots, pans, <laughs> shower, street sounds. I mean, I, I don't think, I never consider myself like a musician the way some of these guys who play with myself or who are I think of myself as more of an artist who kind of uses music as the medium. And um, I don't really get off by like, oh look, I'm playing, it's amazing. I don't even know what guitar I'm playing, you know, half the time. I'm like, I, I don't, let, me, let me look, oh, it's a, you know. I just enjoy like the tools. So I enjoy this kind of bizarre approach to it. So yeah, even cars and engines, I hear music, so I'll, I'll have an idea. So percussion plays a role into all that, but I think I'm very percussive, especially my guitar playing, due to my hand because my hand is so limited. Well, looking at everything, 
sort of into humble brag territory. But when did you realize that you were right? <laughs> I still haven't realized it. But when did I realize that I had some songs? I'm like, wow, these songs seem seems like a song here. And I, um, at a young age, I knew like, well, I'm gonna be one of these guys who just writes their own songs. And I mean, young for me was like 18, 19. Um, yeah, and uh, I knew I could put songs together. I didn't think I'd ever be a great player because I didn't have the interest in like I wanted to learn enough just to play. Sure. And that's what I'm interested in more. Is that it's like kind of a carpenter with his tools, like with a hammer. You don't like I don't like sleep with my hammer the way that some guitar players. Right. Are like oh my god, my axe. I'm not that dude. I'm just like yeah. It's there and it produces great things. And a lot of people, artists especially, when somebody from their hometown makes it big they go i can do that now yeah. oakland of course hammer came from there oh, del man. the funky homo sapien oh geez i mean we could can i go back even further <laughs> please do sly stone mm -hmm. probably the king of all kings and influence everyone santana grateful dead credence clearwater revival um green day e40 mm -hmm. too short tony 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 mc uh, hammer operation Info. ivy Operation what? Operation Ivy. They were the roots of Rancid. Oh, Rancid. I know Rancid, <laughs> but I don't know how you yeah, know that. Ruby Soho, I remember them. Um, I think I was out of the Bay by then. I was in L.A. That was the 90s. Uh, yeah, there's just so much. It's just stupid. Metallica, come on. Mm -hmm. Shit. So the Bay Area, I think the thing that's unique about it is that I don't think there's a sound. I think the thing in the Bay Area is be yourself. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes it different from Motown or... Seattle, like the Bay Area, is you have all these different groups emerging at the same time that are completely different, and I think we pride ourselves on, on that. And then bringing it forward to today, being in Clearwater, Florida, do you do a different kind of set when you're doing a festival rather than a theater or a club? I think it's different spiritually, you know what I mean? Because you, this is all about like channeling that thing, you know? spirit some people use drugs <laughs> some people use tea <laughs> well i prefer tea you know but it better be earl gray uh yeah i think that you're channeling something very different i mean these people are like didn't necessarily come to hear music sometimes you know when people you know are, i love my favorite is crammed into a club 500 people it's the best it's like playing in someone's living room they're all different you're definitely channeling something and it really is about channeling that and giving it up to the audience. I'm here for the audience. You know, I'm here for them 100%. So I'm trying to, you know, it's like a first date or something. It's like, you know, or a dance and you're like, oh, gee, let's see. Right. And so, so it's, it's interesting always for me. So the album that you just won the Grammy for, you just did a, uh, a deluxe edition of as well. Does that mean that you have to push back everything that you're doing for another year or two to keep it out there? I don't really think about it like that. Maybe business people do. I just... I'm on this like forward motion. I'm kind of living in a bubble, <laughs> especially starting, you know, Fantastic Negrito, I think, when I'm, I'm 51 now, so I was 46. So it's kind of this middle-aged guy playing this non-genre-specific music, and people are like, wait, you can't do that. Like, that's, it's blues, but it's, it's too much rock in it. Wait a minute, that's rock, but it's too soulful. Wait a minute, that's soul, but it's too bluesy. It's too edgy. That's roots, but it's, that feels like punk music to me. <laughs> I hear like so much stuff that it's like, I just, uh, I love hearing what people have to say about what I do. I said, what this guy was like, I, I'm the punk rock Al Green. 
That was great. I'm the, I forgot it, the male Kate Bush. Yeah, I'm just like, really? Like, where does this stuff come from? Yeah, I, I, so it's just fun because, you know, in today's popular music, you, it's either hip hop or you're a pretty white girl singing pop, and <laughs> I'm neither. <laughs> Sorry to disappoint you guys. <laughs> I know, it's not. So it's kind of, I don't really feel any pressure. I just feel like, hey, go into the studio, go into my art gallery, and just make like great stuff that I go crazy over, and that's it. Any like expectations except for make really cool stuff, so it feels like I'm 17 or 18 again. So the initial vision that you sought where you are your own industry, you yeah. are your own person, yeah. you do the kind of music that you do, and you're not out to write singles to please Universal or whatever. Nah. Ooh, that's like death to me. I don't, <laughs> I, first of all, let me just give people credit. I don't know if I could do it. I mean, a record label once gave me a million bucks, and I couldn't do it. I was too much of a freak and a weirdo. So I've embraced that freak and that weirdo. <laughs> I'll embrace you freaks and weirdos too. <laughs> Which, yeah, you know, it's, it's just like, you know, you grow up, I was always the oddballs. I was in Oakland, I was like the kid, I was like in some of the toughest neighborhoods, but I would buy these leopard skin cowboy boots and like walk through the hood, like, hey, man. Like, it's a complete nutcase. But, you know, some of the, the toughest people, the thugs and all that, they had a respect for it. But they're like, motherfucker. Like, you're a crazy motherfucker. But I think people respected it, but, you know, I. I'm sure I was just a hell of obnoxious too. <laughs> you know, what I mean? you know. I'm sure I was a pain in the ass and annoying too. But it's. Uh, I have a lot of people that really supported me when I look back on that whole. It's amazing, like just the loving, amazing human beings that kind of came to my rescue. And I was just like this confused, lost kid, you know, as a lot of kids are. And I look back now, and there was a whole community that like saw something in me and embraced me. No matter who they were, you know, they were boxing instructor, a teacher, a sure. kid's parent. I remember I was a runaway at 12. I ran away. I never came back home, actually. Never saw my dad again. Yeah, it was kind of weird. Um, but I remember, like, this family used to let me eat there every night. I think they knew, but I didn't know what to say. I was hungry. But I would eat a dinner at the house, like, every night. It's just people like that that I, I'll never forget. Wow. They tolerate me. <laughs> yeah, they tolerated me. They did. I guess it was like. Yeah. So you find it easier since uh, social media and all this other stuff out there where you don't really you can go around the record companies. Around oh yeah, I did connect to your fans. No, the last days of Oakland, I I didn't have a record label. I didn't realize it till I got to the Grammys, and I was sitting there. I was like, oh, I probably won't win this because everything was a label, and I thought, wait, a minute. I don't have a label. Right. So, but let's give credit to the machine. The machine was kind of like, we're acknowledging what you're doing because it's pretty different. And that really surprised me. And then to do it again, because I think I've made this out, I'm like, okay, I got rid of my Grammy, meaning I just don't, I don't want to look at it. I don't keep it. I feel like that's, that's, that's the devil. That's the devil. It is. It feels like it's great to win it, but you don't want that thing hanging around. Like you're like trying to work and you're like, you know, it's just like you're trying to write a song. You're like, but I don't, I don't like having it around. Um, and I thought, well, I'm gonna really just go make a record. Really, and I like turn the guitars up and plastic hamburgers. I remember people like, oh my god, what are you doing? And so I thought, they, I'm done, and I, you know, that one again. So, but I kind of made it like to be like, all right, I don't want to say, I'm not eloquent enough to say, 
I made it to say, I won a Grammy, I don't have to ever worry about that again. Now go even further, make an album that's really what you want to do and, and still. Right on, so any last words for the kids? The kids! Uh, when I say the kids, it's like, you know, make good choices, because if you make good choices, you get good results. If you make bad choices, you get bad results. So for kids, it's really all up to you. It's not my big mouth. It's like you really have, they have a lot of power, kids, and it's got to make good choices because then the results will be fucking amazing. Trust me. Last but not least is my chat with founding Queensryche bassist Eddie Jackson. Queensryche released a new album in March titled The Verdict, which is the third album with vocalist Todd Latore. Latore also played drums on the album, which I find to be especially interesting. Amazingly, Jackson and band are still playing big venues decades after the release of Operation Mindcrime. So uh, The Verdict is the new album. How long did you spend making it? Well, off and on, uh, we were in support of Condition Human uh, when that was released for about a year, or year and a half. But we did start writing, uh, which is what we always do anyways. We can you know, constantly write ideas. But uh, I-, I would say about a year, year and a half after... We're touring in support of Condition Human is probably when the writing process began. Uh, and I actually, more or less, when we started to focus on the songs that we all had been writing and you know, the ideas and, uh, you know, started putting things together, I- I'd say about that time. And when in the process did you know that Todd would be playing drums? That wasn't up until we were about to uh, enter pre- uh, pre-production. And uh, we couldn't get a, a full commitment from Scott. So we were about to start pre-production and I remember discussing this with Michael, uh, that, uh, you know, we, what are we going to do for a drummer if Scott's not available? And so as we were, you know, uh, getting ready to start pre-production, I have an electronic drum kit that I brought over and, uh, we knew, uh, our singer, uh, also played drums, which is what he's been doing for, you know, 25 plus years before he started singing, you know, and, uh, but, uh, yeah, we, we, we had the discussion, and as we were crafting all these I- song ideas during pre-production, our singer, LT, uh, started sort of, you know, working with some of these songs, putting in all the little drum parts together. And, uh, and ra- that was right then uh, when I told Michael, I said, hey, you know, there's our drummer right there sitting behind the drum kit. Let's just, uh, you know, let, let's just go with that. The end result as you can hear on the new album, uh, we were very, you know, very pleased with. So that, that's how that kind of came about. But um, we kind of kept it in-house uh, by hiring uh, our singer to play drums on the album. And Man the Machine is the first single off the new album. When in the whole uh, pre-production process did that song come about? That's hard to say because we were, we had a good 16 to 18 song ideas that we were working on. And then we picked out, the, I think, the, 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 the 10 or 12 that we felt had the most potential um but i can't exactly say when man the machine was actually you know finally uh finished up to start recording but certainly was one of those that was in the process and all these years later one of the remarkable things about queensreich is that you're still playing large theaters and also you know co-headlining arenas when is it that you knew that this was going to be a long-term ban whether or not you had hit singles well honestly speaking for myself not even in my wildest dreams that I ever think I'd be doing this 35, 37 years later. And uh, to, to answer your question, for the most part, I think a lot of it was a time when we sort of felt 
it, we were gonna, it was kind of like our turn to start making some noise out there was, was I believe during uh, the Operation Mindcrime release and then followed it up by Empire and then Promised Land. That was about the time we, we started to, you know, get recognized and started playing much larger uh, venues. Well, you've held on to it all these years, you know, even after leaving the major label world. So let me ask, let me ask it this way. When did you realize the importance of doing it yourself and that that could lead to still big results and playing big halls? Great question. It's hard to answer that, but uh, all I know is, is it's been a process and uh, we've seen and experienced a lot of, you know, changes. It, like I said, it's kind of difficult to, to answer, but, uh, you know, we, we just, whenever that time came, you know, we're, and we're still sort of uh, in that place now, you know, just fortunate and, and very grateful for that. And also notable about Queensryche is that you guys were from Seattle before it was really cool to be from Seattle. And I know that uh, <laughs> Allison Chains had camaraderie with you guys early on, but were you initially embraced by a lot of the other Seattle artists in the early 90s? Absolutely. We're, in, you know, we're friends with some of those bands uh, that were uh, starting to make a big splash in that early 90s scene. But yeah, I mean, uh, and it's nice to know that, you know, knowing that, you know, Seattle, yeah, it, it had, it was recognized for several bands like Heart, Jimi Hendrix, to name a few, you know, but uh, once the the 90s kicked in gear uh, with all the new bands, uh, it really made a big splash in the music industry. And a lot of those Seattle bands actually wound up collaborating with Sir Mix-a-Lot. Was he ever uh, on your radar? Uh, not necessarily. You know, we just just start, we just kept doing our own thing, you know. Aside from promoting the new record, what are the next you know year or two look like for Queensrÿche? Will you be on the road endlessly, like always? Well, we'll definitely be uh, touring uh, for for pretty much the rest of this year and into next year. Right now, we're in uh, in full support of this new release, The Verdict. And once uh, we start sort of minimizing the touring dates, uh, is when we'll probably focus more on the next album. And then you yourself, do you have any side projects? Well, aside from playing golf, uh, obviously spending time with family, and things like that. Uh, I, I've always, you know, uh, I'm always constantly writing. And one of these days, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to put out like a solo project, solo release on my own. But who knows when that will be? It's, it's, it's been a work in progress for so long, but uh, I'm hoping that opportunity comes to fruition soon. Great. So in closing, Eddie, uh, any last words for the kids? Just uh, a big shout out to the Queen Drag fans out there, and thank you so much for the support throughout these years. Uh, hope to see you all on tour. Thanks for listening to the Paltrowcast with Darren Paltrowitz on the Pure Grain Audio Network. More information on the Paltrowcast can be found online at www.puregrainaudio.com. Until next time, have a great Shabbos. Mm-hmm.